welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. It's Crimigration Week! Or actually, even that might be taking it too far. None of the cases this week involve non-citizens at all. But they are all super important to criminal immigration practitioners, as they analyze criminal statutes in ways directly applicable to immigration. So of course I did them. Also, for what it's worth, this week, the Tenth Circuit granted a motion for panel rehearing and amended its important Velasquez v. Garland decision from episode 176. But according to the Tenth, its new decision, quote, resulted in only non-substantive changes to the opinion that do not affect the outcome of this appeal, end quote. So go back and listen to episode 176, after you listen to these cases. First up, United States v. Trice, published by the Eighth Circuit on December 12th, 2023. This is a short case that has nothing to do with immigration, at least not directly. Mr. Trice was on supervised release for having committed some federal crime, but it was then revoked when, as relevantly, a district court concluded that he committed a, quote, child endangerment, end quote, offense while on supervised release. The offense, reasoned the district court, was a violation of Iowa Code Section 726.61a. Under that statute, a parent or person with custody or control of a child commits child endangerment when he, quote, knowingly acts in a manner that creates a substantial risk to a child or minor's physical, mental, or emotional health or safety, end quote. It appears that Mr. Trice assaulted the mother of his minor child in front of his children. To me, this case is immigration relevant for a few reasons. One, it's a holding that can be used to argue what is required of the federal generic definition of child endangerment. Although that might be a bit of a stretch, as this is all taking place in the very specific context of revoking supervised release, and in any event, that argument probably isn't non-citizen friendly. 
More interesting to me, then, is the Eighth Circuit's affirmance here of the district court that the Iowa offense satisfies the supervised release implicating child endangerment definition, and why. Because, of course, child endangerment-type crimes will make a non-citizen removable under INA Section 237A2EI. The BIA's precedent on that issue smushes together child abuse, child abandonment, and child neglect all together which are the technical terms used at the INA, and doesn't necessarily require that a state statute require physical harm to qualify, that is, to make a non-citizen removable. But does that immigration definition include the conduct described as sufficient by the Eighth Circuit here? It's an interesting question, as the Eighth Circuit is explaining here that the Iowa crime doesn't require overly culpable conduct, at least from the child's perspective. For example, quote, child endangerment is a general intent crime in Iowa, end quote. In Iowa, as with all states likely, quote, general intent is present when from the circumstances the prohibited result may reasonably be expected to follow from the offender's voluntary act, irrespective of any subjective desire to have accomplished such result, end quote. Rephrased, no specific child endangerment intent is required to convict in Iowa, or really any child endangerment type crime that only requires a general intent mens rea. Nor need the child be the target of what's happening in any way, shape, or form. That's what's most interesting to me, to be honest. Quote, it is reasonable to conclude there is a real or articulable risk or a very real possibility of danger to a child's mental, physical, or emotional health or safety from witnessing the child's mother assaulted, end quote. Here, Mr. Trice's crime, of course, met that Iowa definition, and the Eighth Circuit concluded that yes, it met the supervised release endangerment definition as well, because he was aware that the children were present when he assaulted their mother. That's all that's required in Iowa under this statute. Does that meet the definition of child abuse, abandonment, or neglect? I really don't know. If you ever get this Iowa statute in your case, cite to this precedent also for a realistic probability argument. That is, that the statute reaches conduct in practice that doesn't meet the immigration definition. After all, the only thing that the children witnessed were Mr. Trice and his partner getting, quote, into a heated argument, end quote, after which Mr. Trice, quote, lifted her bed and dropped it to the ground while she was in it, end quote. The kids were definitely frightened, but that's all they saw. Not only that, in Iowa, it is, quote, immaterial, end quote, whether the defendant, here Mr. Trice, has custody or control of the children. As with so much on the pod, I certainly don't condone Mr. Trice's actions, but as described by the Eighth Circuit, There certainly seems to be arguments that the least culpable conduct criminalized by Iowa Code Section 726.61a might not match INA Section 237A2EI. And that's why clients hire us, right? And that is United States v. Trice. Next up, we have U.S. v. Mendez Montalvo, published by the First Circuit on December 12th, 2023. This case is about crimes of violence, a phrase directly found under immigration law at INA Section 11A43F. The criminal conviction occurs in Puerto Rico, never done before on the podcast. 
U.S. citizen Mr. Mendez Montalvo had his supervised release revoked and his criminal sentence for his federal conviction enhanced because the district court determined that his conviction for violating Article 3.1 of Puerto Rico's domestic violence law equated to a crime of violence. Again, materially identical crime of violence definition used at immigration law, the aggravated felony at INA Section 11843F. Puerto Rico's Article 3.1 makes criminal, quote, any person who employs physical force or psychological abuse, intimidation, or persecution against his or her spouse, former spouse, or the person with whom he or she cohabits or has cohabited, or the person with whom he or she shares a child in common, in order to cause physical harm to the person, property, or to another person, or to cause serious emotional harm, end quote. The First Circuit held here that the district court was wrong. What I just described is not a crime of violence. And by the way, under immigration law, a crime can't be a crime of domestic violence either unless it matches the elements of a crime of violence. Restated, even though this Puerto Rico crime clearly includes a domestic victim, it wouldn't be a crime of domestic violence under immigration law either. The categorical approach, of course, applies. And to be a crime of violence, as we all know, a state or territory offense must have as an element the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force against the person of another. The immigration law definition also permits force against property. By the way, key to both, though, is the requirement that the criminal offense require physical force, also deemed violent force. But this crime clearly doesn't, right? It permits conviction through use of, quote, psychological abuse, end quote, which doesn't require any force at all. Still criminal, but not a crime of violence. The First Circuit seems to recognize this and then fairly quickly and without much explanation deems the Puerto Rico statute divisible vis-a-vis the, quote, physical and non-physical modalities, end quote. That means the First Circuit thinks that a prosecutor must show, for example, that a defendant used physical force to commit this Puerto Rico offense rather than merely psychological abuse. But the First Circuit doesn't really explain why. In any event, looking to the criminal conviction documents, the First Circuit saw that Mr. Mendez Montalvo was convicted of having used physical force. The First Circuit applied the modified categorical approach after finding the statute divisible, looked to the conviction documents, and saw that Mr. Mendez Montalvo was possibly in trouble with the crime of violence analysis. And yet it's still not a crime of violence, explains the First Circuit, because, quote, the degree of force sufficient to support a conviction is less than the amount of physical force necessary to satisfy the guidelines definition of a crime of violence. End quote. That's all about Supreme Court case law. Among other things, in its 2010 decision, Johnson v. United States, the Supreme Court held that crimes of violence and violent felonies don't include crimes that can be committed through mere de minimis touching or force, quote, no matter how slight, end quote. Those type of crimes don't cut it. Puerto Rico case law, in turn, explains that very little force is required at all to convict under the force portion of this statute. The Puerto Rico Supreme Court itself has held that Article 3.1, quote, does not offer any gradation of physical force necessary for a crime to take place. Any kind of physical force or violence, moderate or severe, is sufficient for the crime, end quote. 
So it's a pretty good quote to use to argue that the crime doesn't require that much force at all to convict. Well, retorted the government, what about the fact that the Puerto Rico statute requires that the force employed be, quote, intended to cause harm, end quote? Seems that the statute requires more than slight force, no? This argument is supported by First Circuit case law. Maybe so, but it's dicta, said the First Circuit here. And in any event, Puerto Rico Supreme Court case law is much more important on the elements of a Puerto Rico criminal offense than is First Circuit case law. And in any event, event, quote, There is a distinction between a person's intent to do harm and the steps taken to carry out that intent. A person could, after all, intend to do someone harm, even while ineffectually taking no actions that can reasonably be said to constitute violent force, that is, force capable of causing physical pain or injury to another person, end quote. Well said. And to restate what the First Circuit just well said, it doesn't matter so much what the defendant intended to do. The crime of violence definition requires a showing that they actually used violent force. Quote, Adopting the government's proposed intent standard comes dangerously close to imposing liability based on a person's mindset alone. End quote. Just say minority report, First Circuit. That's all you had to say. We get it. It is indeed the case that the Supreme Court's recent precedent in Stokeling, discussed last week, holds that the violent force definition, quote, does not require any particular degree of likelihood or probability that the force used will cause physical pain or injury, only potentiality, end quote. Fair enough, said the First Circuit, but a statute that only requires de minimis or slight force still won't cut it. It's not about the potentiality, explained the first. It's about the force actually required, and this Puerto Rico statute requires almost none at all to convict, even under the force prong of the statute. So it's not a crime of violence, concluded the first. The district court erred here, by the way, by looking at the facts of what Mr. Mendez Montalvo actually did, which was violent. But that's not how the categorical approach works, whether we're in federal district court or in immigration court. And so, it was sent back for resentencing. And that is USV Mendez Montalvo. Burned out with admin work? Most immigration lawyers are. That's why over 90 law firm owners have chosen Staffy to help them with the legal, administrative, marketing, and client-facing work. Staffy's goal is to help immigration lawyers live a more balanced life while seeing their law firms grow and scale. And they do that by providing a service that includes top-notch bilingual virtual staff with the HR support that will alleviate the law firm owner from onboarding, continuous management, and training of their virtual teams. Concentrate on this strategic work and let the team at Staffy help you with the rest. I have a Staffy and I couldn't be happier. Schedule a free consultation with Staffy at www.getstaffy.com. That's G-E-T-S-T-A-F-I.com. And claim $500 off by using the code STAFFY2024. That's S-T-A-F-I-2024. We conclude with USV Amos, published by the Third Circuit on December 14th, 2023. 
Remember I said that it's the week of sentence enhancement categorical approach stuff that doesn't involve non-citizens. This final case is also about crimes of violence. Also in the sentence enhancement context. As so often happens, Mr. Amos had his federal firearm-based conviction enhanced, based on a finding that his previous state conviction was a crime of violence. The prior crime? A 2008 conviction for second-degree aggravated assault in Pennsylvania in violation of 18 Pennsylvania Statute Section 2702A3-7. through That is A3, A4, A5, A6, and A7. The federal district court enhanced the sentence based on a finding that this was indeed a crime of violence. The district court judge also refused to suppress evidence of the federal crime. The federal judge didn't see an unlawful stop by police of Mr. Amos or some other Fourth Amendment violation. On appeal, the Third Circuit affirmed that latter holding. No Fourth Amendment violation and so no evidentiary suppression. Not too relevant to immigration anyway, so we're going to skip it in the many pages of analysis. But oh, to regularly make such arguments in immigration court like our federal public defender, Brethren. The Third Circuit did, however, send it back for resentencing. 18 Pennsylvania Statute 2702, A3-7, is not a crime of violence, it turns out. It does not require violent physical force in all cases. So it does not always require, as an element, the use of physical force as the crime of violence definition requires. As we just discussed, Supreme Court tells us that, quote, physical force means violent force, that is, force capable of causing physical pain or injury to another person, end quote. And in the Third Circuit, that means force, quote, capable of causing that person physical pain or injury, end quote. There are lots of subsections at issue in this case, five to be specific, and I'm not going to wild bore you by reading all of them. Actually, it looks like the statute might be divisible as between those five subsections, meaning that a prosecutor must prove which specific subsection, A3, A4, A5, A6, or A7, a defendant violated to convict in Pennsylvania. The problem is here that it looks like the prosecution didn't. They didn't charge a specific subsection. They just charged and convicted Mr. Amos under 18 Pennsylvania Statute Section 2702, A3 through 7. Begs the question then, right? Is it even a valid conviction? Or dare I say, the whole divisibility thing is a legal fiction because in practice, prosecutors often don't prove subsections at all, and they still convict? Maybe and a bigger issue than this case. The Third Circuit certainly didn't go that far, but it believed the U.S. government had a big problem here in trying to enhance the sentence, because now to enhance Mr. Amos's sentence, the government needed to show that all five of the subsections were crimes of violence, and they couldn't. Subsection 3 was the problem here. It permits conviction where the defendant, quote, attempts to cause or intentionally or knowingly causes bodily injury to any of the officers, agents, employees, or other persons enumerated in subsection C in the performance of duty, end quote. Can't hit a cop. That's essentially what they're saying, right? But because it's a statute to protect against assault on cops, it applies to a whole bunch of conduct Pennsylvania wants to criminalize and prevent people from hitting cops. And some of that conduct, while criminal, isn't violent. The reason? Well, it's United States v. Jenkins, of course, discussed on episode 160. 
the Third Circuit held that this exact statute, subsection 3, wasn't a crime of violence. The reasoning there was because under recent Pennsylvania Supreme Court precedent, the subsection, quote, can at least be violated by a failure to act, so it's not a violent felony, end quote. You're just not acting. It was in a slightly different sentence enhancement context in Jenkins, but as with immigration law, it's a materially identical crime of violence definition. So like in immigration law, Jenkins controls. And as with immigration law, it means that Mr. Amos has not been convicted of a crime of violence. Before we go, how about this? Feel overwhelmed and frightened by the fact that crimmigration changes so much now and you might not have made the argument below? Me too. And try not to. I mean, you know, try to make all the arguments you can. But here, like a case last week if I recall, not only did Mr. Amos's trial counsel not make the subsection 3 argument before the federal district court that just won the day, but counsel expressly confined their argument to subsection 6 didn't matter to the Third Circuit. At least when new, almost directly on-point precedent like Jenkins came along with a dispositive argument later. Cite to cases like this when you yourself are, unfortunately, making an excellent but new crimmigration argument for the first time on appeal. And that is U.S. v. Amos. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all, and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, or send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M, Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.